0: Welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. It's been a great year for growth, and I wanted to thank each and every one of you for listening, for sharing with others, for subscribing, and for your reviews. Thank you. For the past few weeks, in my spare time spent working in the yard, or in the late hours of the night, or the early hours of the morning, I've been trying to absorb all I can regarding the plot to murder President Abraham Lincoln, and to sort out the true story of the final days of his assassin, John Wilkes Booth, as he spent twelve days on the run in the Maryland countryside, trying to avoid being captured by the largest manhunt in history up to that time. And during those days, he carried a diary into which some say he named names, and explained at least in part the depths of the plot in which he was involved, apparently hoping that when he and the diary were found, his guilt might somehow be alleviated in the knowledge that he was just a small part of a much larger picture, and a savior to the South. When Booth was finally captured, and his body was being transported aboard the John S. Ide to Washington, D.C., J. Wilkes Booth's dentist and personal physician were brought on board to testify that the body was indeed Booth's, according to most stories. The body was photographed, and then the acting Surgeon General, Joseph Barnes, who attended to Lincoln in his final hours, performed an autopsy determining that Booth's death was caused by a bullet to the neck. Dr. Barnes, upon completion of the autopsy, then turned over the results and the photographs of the body to Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, along with John Wilkes Booth's diary, which had been discovered on his person at the time of his death. The diary was handed to Stanton by his investigative right-hand man, Lafayette Baker, Union spy and now headed the National Detective Police, the agency that later became the Secret Service. Baker's heaviest task at the time, prior to his being publicly told by Stanton that his services were no longer needed, just months before the assassination, was counterterrorism, seeking out Confederate spy networks in Canada, New York, and Washington, D.C., It may well be that The Dismissal was a cover story that allowed Baker a chance to get closer to Confederate sympathizers, claiming that his sympathies had turned toward the South, and it might not be. It was Baker who was called back into duty after the assassination of Lincoln to direct the hunt for Booth, and he who benefited from the notoriety, writing an autobiography titled History of the United States Secret Service in 1867, which was highly complimentary of himself and which established the official storyline of the hunt, which is used today, and pretty much told here. Strangely, Stanton never mentioned the loose-leaf diary, locking it in a safe for two years, never telling investigators or Congress that he had a crucial piece of evidence in his possession. And when Baker's book became popular, there was pressure on Stanton to release the diary, which he did, but the diary was now missing 18 pages, pages for which Stanton had no explanation. You will have to admit that withholding the diary, then releasing it two years later under pressure, minus 18 pages, looks very, very suspicious. And that's one big reason why conspiracy theories have been swirling ever since. If something was afoot by way of a Confederate plot to assassinate the president, Agent Lafayette Baker was the likeliest candidate to hear about it, having a network of well-placed informants scattered throughout known hangouts for Confederate sympathizers and enemies of the state. He may also have been the likeliest candidate to put together a network of Confederate sympathizers, if the money and the motivation was right. Conspiracy theories abound that accuse Secretary of War Stanton and or Lafayette Baker of being involved in the plot to kill Lincoln, And it was a plot that took in a lot of people and required a number of working parts. A network. And we'll cover all or at least most of these theories as we work our way through this mystery. I need to insert this note for you history detectives here. In Part 2, we'll be taking a deep dive on Stanton and Baker's possible role in Lincoln's death. And we'll reveal the work of Ray Neff, who reported 1961 that he had found a coded message in the National Archives, possibly written by Lafayette Baker, that implicated him in the Lincoln plot. Around that same time as Neff, an author named Vaughn Shelton came upon the same material as Neff did. The message answers some questions that will come up in the next few minutes and ties the Bank of Montreal, J.J. Shaffy J. Company, Booth, Lafayette Baker, Secretary of War Stanton, and others, in one big conspiracy knot. It's very well done, and we'll cover that in depth in Part 2. Just wanted you to know. Back to our story. Soon to come, the story of John Wilkes Booth's plot, first to kidnap, and later to assassinate President Lincoln and his cabinet, and the many conspiracy theories, some very solid, that have emerged in the years following. Buckle up because this is an incredible story. We're glad to have you with us. It is Monday, April 10th, and the sun is setting on Washington, D.C., where Yankee bands are pounding out, Dixie of all things, and revelers are on their way to parties and plays, many of which will celebrate the preservation of the Union. Richmond has fallen, Lee has surrendered his army, and for many, the war is over although there are still 140,000 Confederate troops still engaged between Texas and North Carolina. So hope still lingers in the hearts of Confederate sympathizers. Lincoln, who has recently won a second term, dreams of pulling the fractured country together. In a few more nights, he will also dream that he has been assassinated and will view a procession of mourners surrounding his coffin in the East Room of the White House, at which point he asks someone, Who is dead in the White House? And the answer comes the President. He has been assassinated. Lincoln shares his dream with his wife Mary, and she draws back, visibly shaken. I wish you hadn't told me that, she cries. Despite the news that Lee has surrendered, despite the obvious need to begin healing suffered wounds, there are still many who are driven by a senseless hatred for the man who now has the responsibility to lead America to greatness and unification. This hatred has been building ever since Lincoln was elected, and everything about the man, his tallness, his ungainly features, which many newspapers not favorably disposed toward him, had been constantly satirizing him with, far past the point of insulting, through gross caricatures comparing him to an ape. The newspapers also attacked his manner of speaking— His decisions on everything from states' rights to the freeing of the slaves to his handling of his generals all provided many papers fodder for ridicule. Lincoln lashed out at some of these papers at one point ordering the Chicago Times closed down. A very controversial move accusing them of treason. And the newspapers weren't above publishing outright lies. One example a New York world reporter and editor Joseph Howard was speculating in gold in the stock market, and in May of 1864, he put out a fake government proclamation from the White House, saying that there was going to be a call-up of 400,000 more troops, which Howard knew would send shockwaves through the public at a time when Lee's troops were on the run from U.S. Grant in Virginia, and many felt the end of the war was in sight. He then faked it to make it look like an Associated Press document the New York World and the New York Journal of Commerce published the fake report. Howard's ruse worked, the New York Stock Exchange plummeted, the price of gold shot up accordingly, and Howard was heavily lining his pockets. But the false news report generated a crowd of disbelieving businessmen and critics who started gathering on Wall Street, demanding proof that the article was true. General George B. McClellan in New York at that time then walked directly into the newspaper building and demanded to see proof. And the New York World doubled down on the lie, editors insisting that the story was true, saying that they had a dispatch from the Associated Press saying that the news was correct. They had forged the dispatch. By 11 a.m., Secretary of State William Seward sent a telegram stating that the news was an absolute forgery, and Lincoln ordered the two newspapers closed. Howard was sent to Fort Lafayette Federal Prison for 14 weeks until Lincoln finally relented. To this day, Howard's effort to enrich himself using the power of the press and the efforts of two newspapers lying to cover it up is called the Great Civil War Gold Hoax. That was a little bit of forgotten history. But when you think about it, the right to free speech shouldn't give people in positions of power the ability to commit fraud or treason. And speaking of treason, back to John Wilkes Booth. He was born in Maryland, a divided state. A state that officially sided with the Union, but full of spies and southern sympathizers. A state where often families were divided. And Booth's family was no exception. John's father, Junius Brutus Booth, who had abandoned his first wife and two children in England, and two of his brothers, one of whom, Edwin, were all considered premier stage actors, and as J. Wilkes Booth, as John Wilkes Booth preferred to name himself, aged to maturity, he did so in the shadow of his talented family. He was, at the age of twenty, five foot eight inches tall, with curly jet-black hair, a face that young women found very handsome, and that athletic body. He was brought into acting with his brothers and father and worked his way up, using his athleticism and learned swordsmanship to accentuate his roles. And soon his energetic physical performances began earning him applause and income as his roles got larger, and he was getting fan mail daily. By the late 1850s, he was touring major cities making $20,000 a year on the average, comparable to $180,000 today and his opinion of himself had grown exponentially. And he was opinionated, having perfected his abilities to assume characters, and seeing himself as a tour de force when it came to hating President Lincoln, who had won election as a Republican in 1860, and his political underlings, who were all anti-slavery. And when the Civil War broke out, not long after Lincoln's victory, Booth, making full use of his travels to major cities, was not being shy when it came to spreading his opinions around and making connections with southern sympathizers. He had connections in Montreal, New York City, Baltimore, Washington D.C., and elsewhere, and as the war plodded on and the South began suffering more and more defeats, Booth's anger festered and finally grew into a rage. In August of 1864, after a bacterial infection sidelined him from the stage, Booth believing himself to be a caped arbiter of justice and the only man who could now save the Confederacy, hatched a plan to kidnap President Lincoln and shared his idea with close friends Michael McLaughlin and Samuel Arnold, meeting them in Baltimore and asking them to join his conspiracy. Booth was very persuasive. They agreed. He then began to recruit like-minded people with certain skills Ranging from prowess with weapons to knowledge of Maryland's backroads and waterways. In October of 1864, Booth traveled to Montreal and met with agents of Jefferson Davis, obtaining cash to be used to support his terrorist activities and a letter of introduction signed by Davis that would connect him with some prominent Southern sympathizers in Maryland, two of whom were Samuel Mudd and John Surratt, who would factor heavily in his plans. And he didn't stop there. He continued to recruit others. And it is a certainty that at some point he attracted the attention of Lincoln's top security team. The kidnapping plot involved grabbing Lincoln on a country road that Lincoln often used to travel horseback, alone, surprisingly enough, to a retreat called Soldiers' Home, just three miles outside of Washington. It seems incredible that a president would do that without security, but times were different, and Lincoln was different. Booth found out about this solitary ride and hatched his kidnapping scheme. He will grab Lincoln, hogtie him, and subject him to days of ranting about Southern causes, maybe punching him in the face a few times. Booth figured that news of Lincoln being captured would reach the Confederate troops that were still holding out, and that they would fight harder to win. The North, without its leader, would be demoralized. One man, the great J. Wilkes Booth, would have turned the tide of the war. Women would flock to him. Great leaders would worship him. Thunderous applause would deafen the theater as he returns for bows again and again. His greatest role in life would be to reprise his favorite role on stage, as Brutus in The Slaying of Caesar. Now, in June of 1864, with the headiness of victory swelling around Washington, D.C., John Wilkes Booth makes a number of attempts to waylay Lincoln, the first occurring at night on a lonely country road upon which Lincoln is supposed to be riding alone to the soldier's home getaway. But Lincoln doesn't show that night. In fact, he had agreed to attend a function at the very hotel at which Booth was staying, the National. Booth and his close friend Mike McLaughlin try a second time and almost attack a passing carriage, but realize at the last moment that Lincoln was not in the carriage. Instead, It was carrying a Supreme Court justice. McLaughlin, now a retired Confederate soldier, told his childhood friend Booth that all this had gone too far, and quit, telling Booth he doesn't want to be part of this anymore. But a month later, Booth talks him into an attempt on Secretary Stanton at a party. And McLaughlin finds his way in, and he's standing a few feet away from Stanton. But now McLaughlin is seriously conflicted, and considers ratting out Booth, But only for a moment. He finally leaves the party and heads for a bar. He is done, finished with Booth. Booth then realizes that he's on a mission that only he can mastermind and pull off. He has become the lone Southern Crusader. Lincoln will die by his hand, and Booth's closest allies will assassinate members of the President's Cabinet. Soon the idea of kidnapping is replaced, by the idea of actually killing Lincoln. Joe Johnston's forces will be victorious in the South, and the South will be saved. The name John Wilkes Booth will fill the newspapers and later the history books. Booth plans the killing at Ford Theater and his escape across the Navy Yard Bridge into rural Maryland. Mary Surratt and Dr. Samuel Mudd will make their homes available to him as he flees to the countryside. On Wednesday, April 2nd, 1865, Booth hears that General Grant will be in town and attending Ford's Theater with Lincoln. Depending on which account you read, Booth was either glad to hear that because now he'd have a chance to kill the most loved men in the Union or he was very distressed to hear that, thinking that General Grant might not be such an easy target. The city of Washington, D.C. has planned a grand welcome for Grant but why not take down all the rest as well? Vice President Andrew Johnson lives at a nearby hotel and is unguarded. Secretary of State William Seward lies in bed after a near-fatal carriage accident. An easy target. Booth assigns the job of killing Secretary Seward to accomplice Lewis Powell, an ex-Confederate soldier. He chooses accomplice number two, a simpleton and drunk named George Azarot, for the murder of Vice President Johnson. The third accomplice, David Harold will provide means of escape and a route through the swamps of Maryland because he's familiar with that area. Curiously enough, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton is not on the list. 160 years later, people are still asking why. One well-known theory is that Lafayette Baker, Seward's one-time spy and head of the National Detective Police, was apparently let go by Seward, who said he had tired of him. Baker had gone to New York, It is very possible that Baker had gone to work for J.J. Chaffee & Company, a Canadian company, where he had received payments totaling over $150,000 from that firm in a short period of time after his release. Other than the fact that total represented a fortune in those days, think $15 million, there was one more very troublesome detail about Chaffee & Company that has been discovered. J.J. Chaffee & Company also paid John Wilkes Booth, nearly $15,000, between August and October 1864, in gold, credited to the Bank of Montreal. In the same month that that last payment was made to him, Booth traveled to Montreal and met John Surratt, a Marylander whose mother, as previously mentioned, Mary Surratt, was getting tied into the scheme, and she, not her son, will pay dearly for that as the story unfolds. One more clue exists regarding J.J. J. Chaffee and Company's involvement. On April 2, 1865, a telegram was sent from 178 and a half Water Street to a company in Chicago. It read, J.W. Booth will ship oysters until Saturday the 15th. Now, John Wilkes Booth had nothing to do with oysters, except it was very likely code. No one has ever been able to prove that Secretary of War Edwin Stanton was involved. However, with a capital H, he did hire Lafayette Baker, admitting him to the inner circle. And both Baker and Booth received large sums of money from that Canadian company. In fact, on the day of his murder, Lincoln had an appointment with Secretary of War Stanton at the War Department, a meeting during which Stanton told Lincoln that he had been informed by his network that assassination rumors had been circling. He warned Lincoln, just as he had warned Grant earlier not to go to the theater. Grant did not attend. Whether that was because of an alleged warning from Stanton, or because his wife changed the venue at the last minute, or he was directed by a third party, no one knows for sure. So you ask yourself, if Stanton wanted Lincoln dead, why would he warn him? And I can think of three good reasons. One... This conversation was very likely witnessed by a stenographer and written down, a fact that later would help to remove Stanton from any suspicion. Two, Stanton had already warned Grant, showing he was doing his job, and why wouldn't he also warn Lincoln? And three, Stanton no doubt knew that the newspapers had ripped Lincoln recently for accepting his security men's advice when, upon exiting the train from Baltimore and entering Washington, Lincoln had covered his head and shoulders with a shawl and Lincoln had been seriously miffed by the embarrassment that had caused him when cartoons appeared in the papers. So Lincoln was ignoring most advice about not going out in public. With one exception. He left Stanton's office that day with his shawl wrapped around his head. Then came Friday, April 14th, 1865 and the last full day of President Lincoln's life. By 11 p.m. that evening, Lincoln had been shot by Booth. Booth's accomplice, Lewis Powell, is raging up the stairs of Seward's home, first attacking Seward's son viciously, then punching the secretary's daughter, Fanny, hard in the face and knocking her to the floor, then cutting and slashing at Sergeant George Robinson, who has been assigned security at the Seward residence. In Seward's room, which is pitch black, Powell thrusts his bowie knife into Seward, "'who rolls off the bed into the space between the bed and the wall. "'His knife then connects with Seward's head, "'tearing a huge flap off his skull. "'At that point, Seward's son Augustus enters the room. "'Augustus is thirty-nine years old "'and a veteran of the Apache Wars and the Civil War. "'Upon seeing his shadow enter, "'Powell leaps at him, stabbing him seven times. "'Private Robinson also rejoins the fight, "'getting knifed four more times for his effort. "'In the closed space, the only armed man is Powell, "'and his knife is doing all the talking. "'Powell then steps over the four bodies on the floor, "'thinking they are dead, and runs down the stairs, "'only to collide with a courier who was entering the building. "'He stabs the courier just above the fourth vertebrae. "'Bell, the servant, who had been attacked on the stairs "'and ran out the front door calling for help, "'is still out on the street, yelling for help, "'and soldiers begin to arrive. "'The attacker, Powell, "'runs to where his companion should be waiting, "'but finds only his own horse tied to a tree. "'He mounts the horse "'and slowly, coolly trots the horse down 15th Street "'while Bell follows him, "'trying to draw the soldier's attention to Powell, "'but for some reason they ignore Powell "'and go running past him. "'Powell then escapes.' George Azarot, who was assigned to kill the vice president, gets drunk and thereby misses his opportunity to kill the vice president. Booth has shot Lincoln from behind and, again using his athleticism and his flair for drama, uses a large flag to swing down onto the stage, but he caught his spur on the flag and fell clumsily upon the stage, breaking the bone above his ankle. In his hand, he's holding the blood-seared dagger that he had just stabbed Major Rathbone with when that man came to Lincoln's aid back up in the theater box. Booth blasts through and past everyone standing in his way and manages to stab two more men on his way out of the theater. His horse, as he had arranged, was waiting, thanks to the stable boy who delivered it, and who now lies writhing on the ground thanks to a neatly placed kick from Booth just before he got on his horse. Booth slowly made his way toward the Navy Yard Bridge, was challenged by a sentry, and then was allowed to pass over into Uniontown, now called Anacostia. An hour later, Booth's accomplice, David Harold, was also allowed to pass. Some accounts say security was no problem at that time. Others say that since assassination threats had been rampant, security on the bridge was very tight, coming and going. Theory has it that Booth was given a password by an unnamed person in the conspiracy, a person who must have occupied a high enough place to have orders changed. In Washington, the next 24 hours are a collective mess of sorrow, shock, and an all-out search for accomplices. Azeroth's room is searched, and a wealth of incriminating evidence is discovered. Stanton orders a net thrown around not only the city, but the country, in an effort to find John Wilkes Booth. Then he telegrams Lafayette Baker in New York, somehow knowing just where to find him, recalling him to work. He wants him to lead the investigation. A lot of people are still asking, why, today? Why Stanton wants Baker to lead the investigation? And just as many have a good theory. Baker will do whatever Stanton wants in terms of evidence. Maybe even in terms of the apprehension of Booth. And, conspiracy theorists believe, if Stanton is involved... Baker can either silence Booth or make him disappear. Saturday night, April 15th, finds Booth and Harold in the home of Confederate sympathizer Dr. Samuel Mudd, who is putting a splint on Booth's broken leg. They had already stopped at Mary Surratt's country home, where she furnished them with food and drink and two Spencer rifles before leaving. Booth refused his, saying that the weight of the rifle and the extreme pain in his leg just didn't mix. Easter morning finds them camped in a stand of pines a quarter mile off the main road. The air is damp, swampy, and cold, but Harold knows he dare not light a fire. Earlier they had asked a sympathizer to arrange a ferry across the Potomac, and within a few hours they're found by Thomas Jones, a forty-year-old smuggler who will smuggle anyone or anything across for the right amount. Jones sets them up and then leaves them, telling them to stay quiet until he returns and informs them that the countryside is full of soldiers. Booth reads a newspaper that Jones has left behind, and he is furious that he's being called a scoundrel. He pulls out his diary and begins to write the story of what inspired him and who has helped him thus far. He wants to make sure that if he goes down, they all go down. Meanwhile, over 1,000 troops are searching the Maryland swamps. Their method, by foot, through the muck, in the cold, standing only yards apart, sometimes plunging in over their heads in the slimy morass. The saddest part of this story, 87 of those searchers will drown in the week-long search for the little actor who is playing his biggest role ever in his own version of Caesar. For six days, Booth and Harold held out in the swamps, living on one meal a day that Jones is providing them. Finally, they hear a whistle coming from the river. Their signal that a boat is ready and it's time to leave. Booth's leg is in so much pain that he can no longer walk, so Jones offers him the use of his horse. They pass by Jones' house and head toward the river, where Jones is hidden a 12-foot-long rowboat. They carry Booth down the slope, and seat him in the stern, while Jones looks at the compass that Booth has provided and tells him to keep the boat pointed southwest. Jones then tells them to look for Makodak Creek, and once they reach it, to ask for Mrs. Quesenberry. Jones is one of the few accomplices who will never be discovered. That story comes out a long time after people stopped caring. Following a lead that came from witnesses at a ferry crossing, a detachment of 25 soldiers assigned by Lafayette Baker, who had accurately guessed the route that Booth was taking based upon witness reports and a gut hunch as to their direction of travel, was riding from farm to farm searching for the two men. That detachment of cavalry included a 29-year-old Civil War vet named Lieutenant Conger and Baker's cousin, Luther Baker, both spurred on by the $200,000 reward and no doubt having been provided all the technical assistance that telegrams and couriers can deliver regarding the supposed locations of the fugitives from Luther's older cousin, Lafayette Baker. At 2 a.m. in the morning, the detachment approached a small farm located about 300 feet off the road. This was the Garrett Farm. Booth and Harold were welcomed, along with their story that they are former soldiers looking for a place to bed down. Richard Garrett owns the farm, and his son John, having just returned from the war, is there with him. At sunset, word came from a neighbor that Federal Cavalry was crossing the nearby Rappahannock River, and, as the story goes, both Garretts were surprised at the panicked reaction shown by their guests. They both realized that their visitors had something to hide, and insisted that they leave, but the two men, one of them Harold, armed, said they were staying at which point they were directed to the barn to sleep for the night. As the darkness settled, both Garretts came to the realization that these men were fugitives and needed horses. So they grabbed their guns and stood watch outside the barn. At 2 a.m. the next morning, the dogs started barking, and Booth and Harold saw John Garrett enter the barn door, obviously nervous. He ordered them to give up their guns and tells them that the barn is surrounded. There is no chance of escape. "'Booth ordered him to leave, "'and then a few minutes later called out to him "'that Harold wanted to surrender. "'His last words to Harold are, "'Get away from me, you damned coward.' "'As the story goes, "'Lieutenant Baker called out to Booth, "'telling him that they would set fire to the barn "'if Booth didn't surrender. "'Booth, who likely saw himself as a hero "'in a great drama, replied, "'Well, Captain, you may prepare a stretcher for me. Draw up your men. "'Throw open the door.' Let's have a fair fight. A man from the patrol then pushed a handful of straw through one of the breathing vents in the corner of the tobacco barn and lit it, and within seconds, and within seconds, a fire was crackling. At that point, Booth shouted, One more stain on the old banner, which no one understands to this day, probably a line from a play, and if the account we go by is accurate, then who else could be making these desperate last moments seem like an act from a stage play? There are two other men named in the conspiracy theories, but neither one of those men would have said what we are given to believe was said. As the main account goes, Lieutenant Baker entered the barn door cautiously looking toward the area where Booth's voice had come and saw Booth aiming a carbine back at him. At that same moment, the crack of another rifle is heard. Sergeant Boston Corbett has sighted in on Booth and although as the story goes, He was given orders not to shoot unless ordered. He fires and sends a bullet through Booth's neck, which severs his spine, instantly paralyzing him from the neck down. With flames crawling up one side of the barn, Baker and Conger rush in and drag him out of the enclosure. One small note here. Note how similar Sergeant Corbett's name is to Sergeant Cobb, who was by many accounts the guard standing at the north end of the Navy Yard Bridge leading out of Washington. The guard who lets first Booth pass and then Harold. Books on the subject going as far back as 1907 suggested both men gave the guard a short prearranged code word and that was all that was needed. In other words, according to that story, someone higher up with the power to do so arranged an escape for both men. If Cobb or Corbett was involved, he now had a motive for killing Booth. Dead men don't talk. If that wasn't Booth in that barn, Cobb may have been ordered to kill him. Again, dead men don't talk. All these questions remain unanswered, and that's the challenge. I was poring over that 1907 book this morning. The name of it is The Escape and Suicide of John Wilkes Booth by Finnis L. Bates, B A T E S, and I've got to admit, it's a very unique book. The premise is that the author lived out west in post Civil War years and became friends with a man named John St. Helen. After a good deal of time, St. Helen opened up to the author and told him that he was John Wilkes Booth. And then St. Helen gave the author enough personal details about Booth's family life to sink a boat, and then showed him the scars on his hands, head, and ankle where his bone broke, and explains in detail everything he experienced as part of the conspiracy to kidnap Lincoln. And it's detailed. And Booth's direct handler, never seen by Booth's accomplices, is none other than Vice President Johnson, who, incidentally, was from South Carolina, and according to this story, sees grabbing the reins of power as the only way to save the South. It's a fantastic read, fantastic having a double meaning, meaning good and meaning it's out there, but it's possible, and you can find it online or buy it. Again, it's called The Escape and Suicide of John Wilkes Booth by Finnis, F-I-N-I-S, L-Bates, B-A-T-E-S. And by the way, with Lincoln out of the way and Johnson as president, turning things around for the South wasn't how it worked out. The South was thoroughly beaten and demoralized. Davis was trying to make it to Mexico. Does that exonerate Johnson? Also, John St. Helen, a.k.a. J. Wilkes Booth, also said that Johnson had told Booth the day of the murder, not to worry, that Grant wouldn't be attending, and that the people in the Booth were sympathizers to the Southern cause. That's a wild story, I know. And I know you might recall Major Henry Rathbone, who tried to take down Booth after the shot, but suffered a deep cut on his arm in the process. A strange follow-up, Rathbone did survive, and married his fiancée, Clara Harris, who was there that night in the box with him. But as the years passed, Rathbone was apparently so unhinged by his inability to prevent the murder and to stop Booth, that on Christmas Day, 1883, he reenacted the event in a horrible way, shooting and killing Clara, and then turning a knife on himself, as Booth had done 18 years before. Rathbone survived and lived out the rest of his life in an insane asylum, dying in 1911. Back to our timeline, three months later, a nine-member jury found Lewis Powell, Mary Surratt, George Adzerot, and David Harold guilty, and the judge sentenced them to hang. Dr. Mudd, Michael McLaughlin, Ned Spangler, and Samuel Arnold are banished to Fort Jefferson Prison in the Gulf of Mexico. Those to be hung are chained within the bowels of the warship Montauk to await their last day with heavy hoods placed over their heads, having only one slit from which they will be spooned mashed food. The sweating and bloating of their faces beneath the hoods change their appearance. Mary Surratt is not helped in any way with female needs. She becomes very ill prior to her hanging. Of the four to be hung, only Lewis Powell has killed anyone. Mary Surratt's hell will continue to the very end, as her six-foot drop failed to break her neck, and she was left struggling for five minutes until her windpipe finally closed. She is the first and only woman to be hung by the U.S. government. It was her son John who had started it all, gotten her involved, but was never caught. The building in which Mary Surratt and three more of Booth's accomplices were tried still stands. It provides housing for junior officers in Washington's Fort Leslie McNair. And next to that building stand tennis courts where men and women can be seen enjoying the game of tennis day and night. Where those courts now stand, a scaffold once stood with four coffins arranged in line. Mrs. Surratt and the three others had climbed the traditional 13 steps and hoods were placed over their heads. Soldiers stood at attention all around, including those beneath the scaffold ready to deliver the victims to their coffins. From windows and surrounding buildings, civilians watched, and one of them was Mary Surratt's 20-year-old daughter, who fainted when the hood was placed over her mother's head. Once revived, she was taken back to her mother's boarding house, and that still stands on Washington's H Street, but it's currently a Chinese restaurant named Golo's, with only a plaque remaining to remind us of what the building once was and that was Surratt's boarding house. Mary Surratt's ghost is said to haunt the Fort McNair building, and when it's seen, it's seen in the same black dress that she wore when she was hung. A few years ago, a young officer housed in that building was so shaken by the presence of something unnatural there that he called for an exorcism to have the spirit removed. In addition to Surratt and the three men, dozens of others involved peripherally in the conspiracy were rounded up and given sentences. This was all done under the tight jurisdiction of Secretary Stanton. The body of John Wilkes Booth, who died two hours after the barn incident, was loaded on a boat for the trip back to the capital. At the beginning of this story, we relayed the fact that his body was transported back to the capital aboard the John S. Ide, where Booth's dentist and personal physician were both brought on board and both testified that the body was that of John Wilkes Booth. Pictures of his corpse, which later mysteriously disappeared, were taken. Soldiers handed Booth's diary to Lieutenant Baker, and he gave that directly to Stanton, who locked it in a safe for two years, telling no one, including Congress, that it even existed. And when it was brought out, eighteen pages were missing. On Stanton's orders, Lafayette Baker staged a mock burial, wrapping the body in a horse blanket and throwing it in the Potomac while the public watched. After the crowd, having watched that, dispersed, the ship traveled round the bend to the old penitentiary on the grounds of the Washington Arsenal, and Booth was, as Stanton's official story goes, buried in an unmarked grave beneath the dirt of the prison's floor, his body having been placed in a gun box that served as his casket. When the prison was leveled two years later, the remains were sent to a family plot at Greenmont Cemetery in Baltimore. In December of 2010, Booth's family agreed to exhume the remains to perform a DNA test. That was nine years ago. Today, there's still no record of that ever happening. Nothing. Nowhere, no how you can search for it yourself. Either it wasn't done, or the records weren't revealed. And of course, as you might expect, Conspiracy theories have been swirling. Mostly around these three points, which we've touched upon at different points in the story. One, that Secretary Stanton was part of a large conspiracy to kill or kidnap Lincoln, and that Lafayette Baker was a part of that conspiracy. Or, that Baker had wiretapped Secretary Stanton and determined that he was in secret helping to finance Booth and was blackmailing him. Two is an extension of one, which asserts that Booth did not die. He was set free while another man similar appearance was killed. This theory expands into the story of Booth assuming the identity of John St. Helens and living in Texas. Three, that Vice President Johnson was directing the actions of John Wilkes Booth right up top, pressuring him at the last minute to kill, not kidnap, Lincoln, as well as Seward. The question there that ruins that theory would be that John Wilkes Booth had assigned Adzerod to the job of killing Vice President Johnson. If that's true, it's highly doubtful that Johnson was directing the actions of Booth. If you're really serious about finding some ghosts or just getting in touch with the past, you can check out these locations. And there are tours out there you can take. Just a few blocks from Golo's Chinese, you can find Ford's Theater where everything has been kept exactly the same since the night of Lincoln's assassination. The National Park Service maintains the theater, which still shows plays, and in the spring, around Cherry Blossom time, 8,000 people visit daily. The clothing that Lincoln was wearing, the gun that Booth used, the manacles that the conspirators wore in prison, and the knife Booth used to slash his way out of the theater, as well as the boot that Dr. Mudd cut from his leg so he could put a slint on the bone above Booth's ankle, are all there. The National Park Service also maintains the building across the street where, surrounded by doctors, friends, and family, Lincoln died. The alley behind Ford's Theater today is the t-shirt capital of the U.S. Rows and rows and rows of tables selling every kind of t-shirt you can imagine can be found in that alley. You might remember that once past the Yard Bridge, Booth and Harold made it through the woods to the Surratt House, now located between all the modern clutter of concrete and fast food restaurants and strip malls. But the Surratt House has been saved, and it serves as a museum, looking just as it did in 1865. A Spencer carbine was handed to Harold, and to Booth, who, due to his leg, couldn't handle the weight of the carbine while their horses were standing in front of the tavern, right where the historical marker is now standing. From there it was a 16-mile ride to Dr. Mudd's. All this had been pre-planned by? That's for you to figure out. But the escape route and the help along the way had been contacted, and everyone was prepared. Somebody had done their work well, and if you recall from the top of our story, it may have been Jefferson Davis's people. So check that one off on your list. And that one looks pretty good. Except for one thing. It doesn't explain the huge checks that were received from J.J. Chaffee and Company by both John Wilkes Booth and Lafayette Baker. That's the real twister in this story. Figure that out and you've got a book. And a good one. Dr. Mudd's house has also been restored and is now a museum. And all the relatives say Mudd was innocent. He should have never gone to prison yet it was no mere coincidence that the fugitives went there. The expression, His name is Mud, has for a long time been attributed to Dr. Mud. All along the escape route, even in Zacchaeus Swamp in Maryland, signs still stand that mark the locations where Booth and Harold hid and traveled, as was well the tiny log house of Cox and Jones, the men who did finally help them across the river. The Garrett farmhouse is gone now, the only remaining memory being an historical marker in the medial strip of Route 301 going through Virginia. And that marker is placed in the spot that marked the corner of the porch on which Booth choked out his last words, which were, Useless. Useless. NBC did an Unsolved Mysteries program on Booth, their theory being that he lived well into the 20th century under an assumed identity and there have been numerous movies and books, but as yet, no one has found the smoking gun that will blow the lid up the whole thing. That likely being the missing 18 pages of J. Wilkes Booth Diary. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We do appreciate your reviews very much, and we'll get to those in just a second. First, I wanted to introduce a new show from 1001 that's out there on some of the Android sites like Google Play and Stitcher.com and at our network website, which is 1001storiespodcast.com. And that is the 1001 History Challenge. And these are short episodes that you can listen to within a 10-minute time frame. And in these episodes, we take a phrase or a quote or a popular saying, sometimes from popular culture, sometimes from the past, and we give you the backstory, but we might leave out just a couple of details, and then we provide the answer at the end, sort of Paul Harvey style. Again, that show is called The 1001 History Challenge, and we can't help but ask, are you up for the challenge? Try that show out. I think you'll enjoy it. And we'll leave a link in the show notes today so you can find it. Reviews keep us rolling. Reviews and subscriptions... So if you haven't subscribed yet to our show, wherever you go, whether it's castbox.fm or player.fm or stitcher.com or Apple Podcasts, it's free. It's no obligation to you, and it makes listening to our show a whole lot easier. So take a moment and please do subscribe. We encourage it, and it helps us in the rankings. And so do your reviews. Here's the latest reviews for you. The first one, very entertaining, five stars. Just started listening to this podcast recently, and I'm finding it very enjoyable. Also, the narrator seems an honest gentleman. Well, thank you. Keep up the good work. That one from Fun Chucks, Apple Podcast, Ireland. Good to hear from you, Ireland. And the next one, a national treasure that enriches seekers of the truth. Five stars. This podcast is the real deal, the standard by which all should be measured. One, content. Beautifully written, deep dives into some of the most compelling topics that history has to offer. Two, listenability. John is at the pinnacle of delivery. The cadence and inflections combined with character provide believability, authority, and wisdom that I trust. Three, honesty, unfiltered truth. Remember what that sounds like? Subscribe to this podcast for that reminder. That one from the Wizard 929 Apple Podcast. US. And thank you, Wizard. That's a beautiful review. We appreciate it. And this one. Glad I found this podcast. I just found this podcast and looks like it'll be one of my favorites. Thanks. That one from Pumpkinhead, Apple Podcast. US. And this one. The best five stars. At last, I found this podcast. Stories are just perfect. Full of interesting, varied stories about great people and great happenings. Thank you. That one from B. hateo Apple Podcast. Australia. And this one, five stars. Very informative and interesting. Excellent podcast for the history buff. That one from Texas Jack, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Awesome Storyteller, five stars. Have listened to every episode of all three 1001 podcasts. Just love all of them. Never turn my car radio on anymore. Waiting for the next episode. Keep up the good work. That one from 12 OC3112, 1 1 Apple Podcast, U.S. And 12 OC, please do look for 1001 Radio Days. And now you can start looking for the 1001 History Challenge. That'll be our fifth. And there's two more planned. Both surprises. We'll let you know when that happens. But for now, see if you can find the 1001 History Challenge. We have three episodes in there now, and we should start delivering more this Sunday night at 8 p.m. along with all our other shows. So keep an eye open. All of you stay safe. And we'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. See you then.